The word today is going to be brought to us by Pastor Ryan Deal, who is assistant pastor at Center Grove Presbyterian. Pastor, we thank you for being here today, and uh, we're all looking forward to your message. Amen. It's a huge honor to be with Providence this afternoon. Um, just such a joy to be with here to worship our Lord once again on this beautiful Lord's Day. Um, if you would, turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 will be the text for our sermon this day. Um, I remind us while we're turning there that the Psalms are uh, the hymnal of the ancient uh, people of God, the ancient Israelites. And as with the rest of God's Word, Psalms are meant to be preached. But I would also argue that they're meant to be sung, for they are the hymnal of the ancient people of God, which we have that opportunity to even sing this psalm after we hear it preached. But the wisdom uh, literature in the Scriptures instructs us uh, differently than how our minds often think about things. Uh, we often uh, think that internal change must occur before you can perform an external deed, right? If we think about our salvation, that's absolutely true. Internal regeneration, being born again, must occur before the external expression of faith or trust in God. But when we're dealing with the wisdom literature, we need to think a little bit differently. We sing the words of any hymn because it's ultimately what we aspire to be as God's people. We aspire to be people who believe the doctrine that this psalm teaches. We aspire to be people who do the deeds this psalm promotes because, again, the external act of singing shapes our internal character. So I ask that we would cherish Psalm 32 as it is preached. But even more, let's cherish it as we sing it after we hear it preached. But let me give some context for Psalm 32. We see in Psalm 1, it immediately sets up the theme for the entire Psalter. It speaks of this person who is blessed. The blessed person is like a tree that is planted by streams of water. And that water nourishes the tree so that it can grow. And it can flourish as a tree that bears much fruit. Now, that fruit is not so much for ourselves, but it's to be a blessing to others. Now, this imagery is given to show us that we are the tree and God's word, his law, is the water that gives us the ability to flourish within God's design. So that's what it means to be in the state of blessedness. And Psalm 32 returns to that very theme. It further reveals what it means to be blessed or blessed. Getting at the very idea of what Jesus was talking about in his Beatitudes. This is also a penitential psalm. Simply meaning it's a song of repentance. Confessing our sins. Saying we're sorry. Turning from our ways. A penitential psalm that we're uh, very familiar with is Psalm 51, and this is where David confesses his sin of adultery and murder. 
And it's important to note, I think, that neither of these psalms in Psalm 51 or Psalm 32 are what some may call, you know, the sinner's prayer. This is not talking about those who enter the covenant by grace through faith alone. But they are addressing those who are already believers and true believers are those who seek a continual life of repentance. So when the Lord redeems us, we still have remaining sin in us until we are glorified. And this psalm encourages us in our sanctification as we seek to die to our sin and live unto righteousness. So let's see how this psalm would encourage us to do so. Friends, this is God's holy, inerrant, inspired word, relevant throughout all ages. A masquil of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of joy. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Providence, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, for it is relevant to our hearts today as much as it was a thousand years ago. Thank you for revealing to us your character, your law, the stories that happened throughout Old Testament Israel and the church. Father, thank you for your word and its power. I pray Today, it would encourage and convict us like the Acts Church in the first century. I pray that we would be cut to the heart, not because of anything I say, Lord, as the preacher, but because you're speaking through your word. Humble us all. We pray in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Many of you may be familiar with um, the 1678 work that John Bunyan wrote called The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, It's an allegorical story of a man named Christian who carried around the weight of this burden wherever he went. You know, some actually say that this is an autobiographical story of John Bunyan himself, uh, a description of how he came to know Christ as his Lord and Savior. But this burden, it came from a book that he read, and we soon find out that that book was, in fact, the Bible, the Word of God. And It revealed to him knowledge of his sin. 
He confessed that his, th- this burden was so great that it, quote, had the capacity to sink him into the very depths of hell. He needed to be delivered from this burden. But he goes on throughout all of life, meeting different characters, visiting a variety of cities, yet none of it was able to relieve him of this burden because the burden got worse. Eventually, he came to the place called the cross. And immediately, he realized how to be relieved of this burden. The burden was relieved when Christians saw that Christ needed to relieve the burden for him. And once it's lifted, he, he bursts into song. What does he say? He says, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could anything ease the grief that I was in till I came here. That's the cross. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. What Christian sang is the whole idea behind Psalm 32. But again, it's not explaining our entry into the covenant faith. Instead, it's talking about a believer's ongoing life of repentance. And actually that joy that can be found as we seek to renew our repentance on a daily basis. And that's the big idea from Psalm 32. In confessing our sin, much joy is to be found. Because God is the one in whom we find shelter from what our sin truly deserves. But the obvious problem is that in our sanctification, we struggle with remaining sin. We have not yet been glorified and perfected in the presence of God. So how are we to experience such joy? As we struggle with this dual reality of joy and sorrow in this life. How do we do it? Well, Psalm 32 will answer this question in three things that we ought to know and also one way we can directly apply the text. So how do we experience such joy? First, in knowing that true satisfaction is only found in being forgiven. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. These verses begin to explain those, again, who are truly blessed, Who are those who are truly happy, truly satisfied in life? Who is that? Well, it's the one who's forgiven by the one true God. When we look at the terms transgression, sin, and iniquity, we may wonder what the difference is. Well, in mentioning these three terms, David seemingly is covering the whole scope of our rebellion against God. First, we have transgressed God's law. We looked at God's design for life, and we said, no, thank you. I want to live how I want to live my life. We wanted autonomy. We wanted to be our own sovereign authority. So we transgressed God's law. Second, we have sinned against God. The idea behind this is that we miss the mark, Romans 3, 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In our own effort, we think we're capable of hitting that bullseye to please God, yet we always fail. We always fall short. We never measure up. So we sinned against God. 
Third, we've also committed iniquity. The idea behind this is that we're crooked, that our rebellion against God has corrupted our very nature. Like Eve in the garden, we have twisted God's standard to make it something that it never was. We commit iniquity. So David, again, is covering the whole scope of our rebellion against God, our transgression, our sin, our iniquity is before him. What shall we do with this great burden? You know, we may have these three things before the Lord, but as with any good poetry, this psalm reveals three things the Lord does in response. He forgives, he covers, and he does not count. He forgives, he covers, and he does not count. You know, if we believe in Christ as our substitute, who died the death that we deserved, the whole scope of our rebellion against God has been taken care of in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, right? First, in Christ, God forgives us. In other words, our burden is lifted. Psalm 103.12 says that our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. Well, second, in Christ, God covers our sin. This is atonement language. He is our shelter and our refuge from what our sin truly deserves. But third, in Christ, God does not count our iniquity either. In other words, he doesn't credit sin to your account. Instead, he credits the very righteousness of Jesus Christ to your account. Again, these verses show us that Christ has taken on the whole scope of our rebellion against God in his death and in his resurrection. I didn't ask the elders to put it as well in the liturgy this morning, but providentially, the Lord had it there. What is the one line in there? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Friends, do we know this blessedness that comes from being forgiven? Do we realize that the only way we can be satisfied in life is if we are forgiven by the creator of all things? If not, it doesn't matter what you've done in life. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Your sin, not in part, but the whole, the whole scope of your rebellion against God is forgiven in Christ and in Christ alone. That's good news. So true satisfaction is found only in being forgiven. But this psalm encourages us to know a second thing regarding how we experience such joy. Secondly, in knowing that unconfessed sin will ruin us. We see this in verses 3 through 4. You know, the imagery is very poignant. David says in verse 3, when I kept silent. Now, what's he referring to there? It seems as if it's a silence in reference to him confessing his sin. In other words, when David does not confess his sin, when he refuses to repent of known sin that he has in his life, he says in verse 3 that it wears him out. It essentially eats him alive. He groans because the burden is too great for him to carry. And he says in verse 4 that God's hand is heavy upon him. So he, he feels 
That's not the hand of God's favor. That's the hand of God's judgment. He feels the weight of the judgment that he truly deserves. He even says that his strength, literally in the Hebrew, his juice is dried up. He's got no energy. He feels as if life is being sucked out of him. But we shouldn't feel bad for David. We shouldn't feel bad for us when we don't confess our sin. Because all this emotion he feels is self-inflicted. Because he has known sin that he's not willing to confess and repent of. This is the imagery David gives us if we don't confess our sin before the Lord. I'm sure um, when I mentioned the name Steve Jobs, you all know who I'm talking about. He was a co-founder and CEO of Apple and also Pixar. And in 2003, he was diagnosed with this uh, rare version of pancreatic cancer. But the good news was that he could get surgery and he could immediately be healed. So, what did Jobs do? Well, he was influenced by Eastern spirituality. He had a very strict vegan diet. He believed that a combination of his diet, herbal remedies, acupuncture, and on and on and on would be sufficient to treat his cancer. So he didn't get the surgery. His diet became his idol. It was something that promised much more than it could deliver on. So then nine months after his diagnosis and the constant pleading from his friends and family Steve Jobs reluctantly got the surgery he needed, but it was too late. The cancer spread to his liver, and eight long years later, he died. His idol ultimately killed him. You know, I tell this story because it illustrates the nature of what unconfessed sin will do to us. To further illustrate it, you may have heard John Owen, one great Puritan of old, say this, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Friends, we do not only confess our sin to God when we first become believers. It's why we confess our sin every week in worship, right? But the Christian life is all about continual repentance, being the chief of repenters. David says elsewhere in the psalm, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, we all have blind spots. We all need the Lord to reveal to us our sin, to see if there's any grievous way in us. So let's not let sin go unconfessed. It will ruin us. If we don't seek to put it to death, it will kill us. Most of the time in a spiritual sense, it'll kill us, but throughout the Bible, we also see cases where it physically kills them with Uzzah and the Ark and Ananias and Sapphira and other occasions as well. Don't let your sin go unconfessed. But there is much joy to be found in confessing our sin. So how do we experience such joy? Again, first we saw in knowing that true satisfaction comes only in being forgiven. Second, in knowing unconfessed sin will ruin us. And the next is a reverse side of what we just talked about that we experience such joy in knowing that confessed sin will save us. And we see this in verses 5 through 7 in our text. In these verses, David testifies to what happens when we readily confess our sin to God. In verse 5, he states that he will, take note of the tense there, he will confess the whole scope of his rebellion against God. He no longer held it in. 
all of his sin, all of his iniquity, all of his, all of his transgression. And what does the end of the verse say? It doesn't say, you know, I confess my sin, the Lord thought about it, and then he came back to me in a few days. <laughs> no. Rather, it gives us this imagery of the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15, more famously called the parable of the prodigal son. He, th- th- this son, uh, when he's in the muck and the mire of his sin, he takes note of the misery that he brought upon himself, and he says this, I will, notice the tense, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Well, the same thing is seen in Psalm 32 in the second half of verse 5. He says, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And then what immediately happens after this wayward son says this to himself? The text says, he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son did not even get a chance to say what he wanted to say to his father, at least from what we know to the text, and we know it's a parable. But immediately upon seeing his son, the father embraced him wholeheartedly, showing that he truly forgave his wayward son. Well, again, the same thing is seen in verse 5 of our text where he says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then what immediately happens before David could actually confess? The text says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is the imagery that um, I believe the scriptures are trying to paint for us. This is, this is our God's posture towards his children who readily confess their sin before him. And this is not simply intellectually admitting that we sin before God, but it's also this heartfelt grievance over our sin. It's not taking the Lord's forgiveness for granted, but it is a true acknowledgement of what our sin truly deserves. And verses 6 through 7 speak to that reality. David says, the rush of great waters. Now to the ancient Jewish mind, The sea was a place of chaos, uncertainty. Metaphorically, it was not a place that you wanted to be or be associated with. And in the case of Psalm 32, it refers to the judgment that is due to our sin. That's unconfessed sin. Because again, if we confess our sin to the Lord, we find favor with God. And as verse 7 states, that God is our hiding place. He is our shelter. He is the rock of ages in whom we find ourselves in. He is the one who delivers us from what our remaining sin has the potential to do to us. So at the end of the day, confessing our sin will save us. Now I remind us that the Bible speaks in a more holistic way regarding our salvation. Absolutely, we are saved. We are justified. We are made right in the courtroom of God. In that legal sense, no doubt. But we also are being saved. That is our sanctification. As our catechism even states, the more we die unto our sin and we live unto righteousness. But we also will be saved. We will be glorified in the presence of God when we pass from this side of heaven. So again, confessing our sin will ultimately save us. 
Well, there's a great irony in this text. In order for God to be our hiding place, we must not hide our sin. In order for God to be our hiding place, we must not hide our sin. We must confess it, and in confessing it, again, there's much joy to be found. Friends, do we believe this to be true? Because true confession results in true repentance. In other words, change will follow a true confession. Things will not remain the same. As God's children, I hope that we feel the freedom that we have to come before the throne of grace because of Jesus' intercession for us and confess our sin freely to the Lord. I hope we feel that freedom. But not only confessing it to the Lord, but also confessing it to one another. I don't know about you, but that can, scout, that can sound scary. Thoughts may run through our mind. If I confess this sin, what will they think of me? Won't this ruin my relationship with them? You know, I could never admit that to another human being. You know, these are very real thoughts that may run through our mind, but they don't derive from a biblical mindset. Because in confessing our sin to the Lord and to one another, there is much joy to be found because the burden of our remaining sin is lifted again and again as we seek to live the life of repentance. What an amazing, amazing truth. And this is exactly how the psalm concludes. We know that true satisfaction, again, is found in only being forgiven, that unconfessed sin will ruin us, that confessed sin will save us. What now? Now that we know these three things, how then shall we do? What then shall we do? Well, David instructs his fellow Israelites to do likewise. That's what he does in verses 8 through 11. And these verses begin by stating, I will instruct, I will teach, I will counsel. Some say this is David speaking for the Lord. Um, is this something the Lord would say to us and certainly says to us throughout parts of the Bible? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, Psalm 32 is God's word, so it is always the Lord speaking to us. But if we read the entirety of the psalm, I believe we have reason to believe that this is David speaking to his fellow Israelites. This is the king of Israel executing his reign and leading the Israelites in a righteous life. David speaks similarly in Psalm 51, verse 13. After confessing his sin and requesting God's pardon, David says this in Psalm 51, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. The same sort of language in both Psalms. So his instruction to his fellow Israelites takes on the form of a proverb. You see that in verse 9, right? Do not be like a horse or a mule. You know, many of you understand this proverb uh, way better than I do. I did not grow up on a farm. I don't own a horse. Never have. Probably rode one once in my life before. And you didn't have to Google what a bit and bridle were. <laughs> so what is David's instruction teaching us here? Well, as verse 9 indicates, horses and mules, they lack understanding. They are, they're stubborn. Um, they don't respond to verbal commands. They need that bit and bridle to direct their way. Uh, the mule will not respond to the sort of direction that we see in verse 8. Will he? 
Uh, John Piper actually gives uh, this imagery to help us further understand it. I think it's a, a helpful image to think of. So God gets in his pickup truck and goes out to the field, puts a bit and bridle in the mule's mouth, hitches it to the truck, drags him stiff-legged and snorkeling all the way into the barn. <laughs> this is not the way the Lord wants us as his people coming to him for protection and shelter. So how we avoid this stubborn response and distinguish ourselves from the mule is through what we've been talking about all along. It's through confession. And verse 10 makes a similar point. It brings up familiar categories of the wicked and the righteous seen throughout the entire Old Testament. Now, contrary to what we may think, the wicked are not these vile pagan nations. They are actually those uh, within God's covenant who are unfaithful and have not embraced the covenant from the heart. So according to Psalm 32, what is the key factor that distinguishes the wicked from the righteous? It's definitely not sinlessness, right? <laughs> Rather, what separates the two groups is what we've been talking about all along, confession. And as verse 10 indicates, that the righteous have the steadfast love of Yahweh, of the Lord surrounding them. That's the special, unconditional, covenantal love that originates from the very character of God himself. And as a result of this love, much joy is to be found. Much joy is to be found. That's how the psalm concludes with three commands in verse 11 to be joyful. It says, be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. Friends, if you know this reality of, of being blessed, if you know the joy that comes from it and that it's not circumstantial in this trial that you all are facing with the death of Jim's son, it's not circumstantial. You guys can still find joy in it. If you know this reality, the Lord is simply encouraging us to share that joy. Instruct fellow believers to do likewise, to readily confess their remaining sin before the Lord, because this is what sanctification is all about, becoming more like Christ, more and more as we die unto our sin and more and more as we live unto righteousness. This is a very fitting in light of Psalm 1 and its imagery of that tree that's flourishing and bears fruit, because again, the fruit that we bear is not for ourselves, it's for the sake of others. It's to be a blessing to them. Now, we do, again, have an amazing privilege of, of singing this psalm. Um, we're actually going to be able to participate in the command in verse 11, where it says, shout for joy. That is, joyfully sing before our God. Because singing this psalm will help us to pursue a life of ongoing repentance. It will urge us to remember that true satisfaction is found only in being forgiven, that unconfessed sin will ruin us, but confessed sin will save us. And as a result, brothers and sisters, we're called to share this joy among one another as we instruct others to do likewise. This is the joy in confessing our sin readily before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, the opportunity to hear your word preached um, in this wonderful Psalter, the ancient hymnal of uh, the Old Testament people of God, and 
that we have the privilege of, of, of singing it even in the 21st century. We pray that this word, uh, through the preaching of it, would mightily uh, convict our hearts, would encourage us. And I pray that through the singing of this psalm, that that outward act of singing would shape our internal character, that you would make us more like Christ as we sing and we obey this command. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your love and your grace towards us in Christ. There is no better news than the gospel of Christ. And I pray that we are passionate about spreading it um, to this community in Edwardsville and around the world. Thank you so much, we pray. In the mighty name of our Savior, amen.